Just a heads up, everybody, this episode contains content relating to grief, which might be a sensitive topic for some listeners. Welcome, everybody, to another episode here uh, of Classical Musicians Roundtable. This week, we are so happy to be joined by Michael Heaston. He is the Artistic Administrator of the Metropolitan Opera. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? Uh, fine. Just got back here to sunny Houston, and you're up in, you're in Iowa now, right? In Des Moines? I, I am in lovely Des Moines, Iowa, where I grew up. Beautiful. Um, so Michael and I got to know each other a little bit my last year at Rice, when Michael was there working as the... Um, as the head of the opera department, we were then co-workers sort of at, uh, at the Houston Grand Opera for a year there. Um, but Michael has, has worn, you've worn so many hats in your career, uh, from performer, coach, working at a university, running a young artist program, and now uh, the administrator of the biggest opera house in the country. Um, so I want to sort of just let you have a chance here to tell a little bit of your story. Um, and then we will get into whatever needs getting into. So, Michael, go for it. Great. Um, yes, yeah, you are correct. I've, I've been fortunate to wear many hats uh, in my career. And um, I started off first as a uh, vocal coach, pianist, chamber musician, um, and knew that I wanted to focus on opera and uh, spent a lot of time uh working in different opera houses, uh, playing rehearsals, uh, serving as an assistant conductor, uh, conducting offstage bandas and choruses, um, but, but also had pursued studies in arts administration um, as an undergraduate. And so I did have an administrative component to my career that started very early. Um, and I was able to maintain these different paths of administration and performance um, until the universe sort of took me more toward the path of administration and also um, education um, and working with young artists. And working with emerging artists really um, has been the hallmark of the first 15 to 18 years of my career. Um, it's something that I've relished in and just enjoyed doing. Um, I, I, as I had this really interesting path, uh, it became clear along the way um, that I was getting exposed to a lot of different situations and life experiences um, very early in a career that I think, you know, many people, it takes 30, 40 years to have that breadth of experience. So, um, you know, I, I really find that my career built in an interesting, fascinating way. Um, and uh, in my own journey, uh, I, I discovered that the relationships I had with others was what made me thrive. And so mm. in my work as an artist, um, yes, I'm a collaborative pianist, but I think that that title uh, really kind of says who I am also in an administrative realm. Um, for me, it's all about collaboration and bringing people together and creating community. And that's what I really thrive on. Great. Um, having worked with you, I can vouch that that is true. Um, but so you, you've spent... Uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of your work focused on education. Um, so between uh, playing voice lessons, coachings, um, being the head of an opera department, running a young artist program, uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about on this podcast is 
the relationship between students and teachers, between mentors and mentees, um, and how aspects of of our culture get sort of passed down through those lines and those relationships. Um, So so I know you have thoughts about this, so I want to give you an opportunity to go for it here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think the one of the most incredible things about what we do is that there is this um, vocational aspect to it and this sort of apprenticeship that we have, uh, which is very different from how a lot of people function within their fields. We develop these close relationships with mentors who work with us in one-on-one settings or in small group settings, and then also in large ensemble settings. But um, in many cases, the first really important relationship that we build is with the teacher. And that involves, you know, a really intimate sort of relationship because uh, by the virtue of what we do, our musicianship has us open our souls in a very vulnerable way to other people. And that first sort of seed of that happens in the studio. Um, And certainly in my career, working in many young artist programs and also at Rice University, um, you know, I I have found this idea of nurturing the next generation to be maybe the most noble thing that we can do in the most humbling and also the most educational for, you know, you yourself as an educator. Um, It's stimulating on every level. Um, I've wondered over the years, especially in the um, young artist path where I work with um, emerging talent that comes from many different, they come from many different schools. They have different teachers, different coaches, different conductors or stage directors they've worked with. Um, I realized very early on um, that I wanted to take a look at that sort of relationship in the way that I was working with people coming to work in my program. Uh, It was always important to me that I was an extension of where people had come from. Um, but I, I also realized, you know, very, very early on that um, there might be a systemic issue in the way that teachers and students relate with one another. Um, and I think I'm right about this. Um, and it's something I hope that will continue I to think change you are too. <laughs> with each passing generation. Um, I think that we have to be really careful Um as anybody who is in a mentor or teacher sort of capacity to identify what is, where does the line of being teacher end and when are we getting too personal with our students? Um, I tend to find that while the line can be hard to identify and there's a lot of grayness in what we do, and that's the beauty of creating artists that it isn't always defined. Um, I see too often on social media or I hear too often people talk who are in uh, teaching positions that they feel that a lot of times their job is being therapist, plus Mm -hmm. they teach their instrument, or that they do a lot of time serving in the role of a therapist to their students. And um, I think that that is a slippery slope. And I think it's something that we have to be mindful of and understand that there's a difference between someone being a therapist and someone being an advisor, being a mentor. Um, so I, what, what I, I guess I'm trying to sum up with this thought is that I think we have to be careful about the way that we um, nurture teacher-student relationships in this regard. Um, I find very often that um, it can create relationships where a teacher and student are too close to one another and the actual work of what they're supposed to do in the studio can't happen. 
uh, because there are too many issues that are being confronted and addressed, which maybe need to be addressed, but perhaps they need to be addressed by someone who's a mental health professional who has studied these things yeah. um, and, is a, and is a psychologist or a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and, you know, it, it's very funny. I, I would find that um, students would come into my studio at Rice and laugh because they had a little sign on the piano and all that it said was, I'm not your therapist. And they would see it and they would laugh and they would say, and then inevitably things would come up and say, I know you're not my therapist, but... Um, but for me, it's very easy to kind of take each student where they are and to identify what can I offer that student to give them the support that they need. But at what point are we going beyond what I believe my role as their mentor and educator is? And right. someone who has been trained in mental health should talk with them. And at what point should I also, as their advisor and their mentor, feel comfortable giving them the advice to do so? in a way that is nurturing right. and supportive or to see if they've considered it. Right. Well, there's so much to unpack there. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I could not agree more with you that your teacher should be your teacher and your therapist should be your therapist and everyone should have a therapist. Let's just put it out there. They're great. Uh, most of them are great. Um, I always find it interesting with this though, because in my experience, at least, there are so many aspects of the teacher-student relationship or or the culture that we build in music schools and, and workplaces in general uh, that I think make it, make students feel like they have to come to their teachers as a therapist. Like, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we hear a lot is students feeling like they're sort of expected to suffer in a certain way for their, uh, for their art, that that is necessary to create great art and that, you know, the teacher slaved away for 10 hours a day in the practice room and so should you. And, you know, and if that results in crippling anxiety and depression, then that's just what happens. Um, and I think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a huge problem with our, with our sort of musical culture. And it's one that when a student is experiencing, of course, their reaction is going to be to come to their teacher sort of as therapist. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, how do you find the line as a teacher between, uh, between therapist and between, okay, this is, you know, this is a, a realm that is appropriate for me to speak as a mentor teacher? Sure. I mean, for me, I think that a, a mark of any good teacher is you are an empath of the highest order. And so, in my opinion, if you're a good empath, what you use most are your ears and less your mouth. And mm. so for me, I really have to listen to them. I need to hear where they're coming from, as opposed to feeling that as much as I care for someone and see them in distress it's very easy to think you have to come up with a solution for them and just start trying to solve whatever issue is being presented. So I think first and foremost, we have to become active, engaged listeners of the highest order who then ponder and think before we just react to what a student is giving us. And I think that right. that helps in many, many ways. Um, again, we're, we're all different people. We're not all wired that way. Um, but I think that the idea of listening to a student who is verbalizing um, something to you as intently as you might listen to how they're playing an etude, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, 
absolutely it is. Um, it's so interesting thinking about this. I mean, I wish that at times in my life I had come to, to a teacher and had opened up to them in the way that I did, probably too much for a student. And I wish that they had said to me, you know what, you really need a therapist and that therapist can't be me. And, but, but I don't know, I'm not a teacher. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable saying that to a student. How can we, how can we find, a, you know, a way for that kind of dialogue to happen in an appropriate way? Yeah, and I think you've hit on a really important point, is that there is so much stigma around the discussion of mental health in this country in general, but then especially in uh, the industry that we're in, which thank God you're doing this podcast, because if we talk about it, we reduce stigma. Um, I, I do believe there needs to be a concerted effort um, to educate our faculty and to educate our teachers, um, which of course relies you know, upon some buy-in from them to be receptive to the information and to understand that we live in an ever-changing world where we must evolve and accept that it's totally fine and not a sign of weakness to discuss mental health. We must do that. Um, but I, I think that a little education goes a long way. And I think uh, more conversations like this, uh, more conversations of this nature at conferences and faculty mm. meetings, any place where you can gather people together and make it a point that just by putting this on the agenda of what we're going to discuss as part of a meeting puts the conversation in the forefront um, in a way that, you know, if we don't position these kind of discussions in a way that gives them prominence, uh, we can't expect that we can affect lasting change. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with all that more. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, these these conversations are not new. Uh, I, I hope that in recent years they have become more common and more people feel that they can be open about their own mental health. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, from your time uh, as a student to now, you know, how were you having these kinds of conversations as a student? You know, how has the culture evolved with this? Yeah, um, I, I believe that we have come a, a bit of distance, a fair amount of distance, actually, in the last 20 years since I was, you know, in college. Um, you know, I can remember that my um, teacher, my undergrad, you know, she had all of us read The Inner Game of Music and a soprano on her head. And, you know, she was very much it was the first time that I had heard about performance anxiety, um, which wasn't something I necessarily battled with, but it kind of started me to think about, um, oh, what is the psychology behind what we do and how we handle uh, different situations? Um, I do remember feeling that, um, you know, fellow students and colleagues in my earlier years, there was much more reticence to talk about this. Um, I've always been the kind of person that people would want to come to to discuss things and confide in. Um, and that's kind of how I've been my whole life, certainly, but also how I built my career is that um, I think it, being the best sort of colleague and leader you can be, you're trying to always make a safe space for everyone around you. And um, I think we know that there are many instances in our business where people aren't working in safe environments um, with regard to mental health, um, where it's okay to fail, where, which, by the way, what does fail even mean? 
And, and um, yeah. how consequential is that failure in the grand scheme of life? You know, all things being relative. Um, so, um, again, I do believe we've made some progress um, in that, you know, we can have these kinds of conversations in an open way where I don't think this sort of conversation was really happening, um, you know, in the late 90s, uh, <laughs> back when I was in school. Um but obviously, I think we, we have much further to go. Um, you can't just think that uh, we can undo a way of doing things that has been done for generation after generation after generation. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe undoing is the wrong word, Ben, because um, there is a core to that, you know, that will always exist. I think it's a matter of how do we react to it and how do we make something out of it? Um to continue to affect change and bring along an evolution to what we do. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. I, I'm sure so many of these issues have, have continued, uh, hopefully better, but the same. I mean, I remember, uh, it was so interesting to me, the kinds of conversations that I had with my friends when I was in college where, you know, you're really tired after a long day and you're coming back to your dorm room or whatever. And, you know, and, and you just think, God, I couldn't possibly practice enough. There aren't enough hours in the day. There's, you know, what does enough practice even mean? And, and everyone's better than I am. And, and what am I doing here? And, you know, and those are the kinds of conversations that I felt happened when people were at their most vulnerable and, and, and they were so rare. But then when you talk, when you open up to people and have those conversations, you realize everyone is having those conversations because everyone has their own battle. Absolutely. So, absolutely. And I, and I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the sense of um, imposter syndrome that all of us has, um, I mean, if you're in this art form, there is imposter syndrome. It's just, it, it, it is. Um, and I think that, you know, number one, we can all own that. Um, and I certainly found in uh, my own path, in my younger years, it was, from my perspective and in my own case, um, easy to have those conversations in my circle of friends when I was in school. But when, you know, I was 26, 27 years old and running the Glimmer Glass Festival Young Artist Program at a very young age, and then a year or two later, adding to that head of music staff at the Dallas Opera, uh, suddenly there was this unknown guy in his mid to late 20s with, you know, respectable positions, good jobs in the opera world in the U.S. Um, and I can't even begin to tell you what the imposter syndrome was with that. And, um, you know, I was, yes, working with artists who, some of whom were younger than me, um, having to manage artists my age or older. And who do you go to when you are managing your peers and you're supposed to be the authority in the room? Um, you know, you go into yourself for a lot of resilience. I'll tell you that much. Um, but you learn how to build the right team around you. Um, cause even then you, I, and certainly in my case and being very fortunate with the opportunities I had at a young age, um, and working my tail off to do something with them, um, I felt certainly for many years that I just had to keep proving to people that it wasn't an accident that mm -hmm. I'd gotten these jobs and that I hadn't messed them up. Right. Yeah. Let's get into this a little more because what, what I was about to ask you, I was going to ask you, you know, everyone sort of has their own battles. What have your battles been? 
uh, and maybe th this is one of them. Maybe there are other ones. Um, but this idea of imposter syndrome is something that I think affects almost all of us in some aspect of our life. So, so tell us, tell us more about that. I mean, how did it manifest itself? What was your reaction? What worked in terms of helping yourself through it or didn't work? Um, you know, whatever you want to share. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. I was watching, um, this 60 minutes interview that Viola Davis did not too long ago, um, which I highly recommend. Um, and she had a fantastic thing she was saying about imposter syndrome that really struck a chord with me. So I'd, I'd recommend that people go listen to that. Um, cause you know, I'll say, you know, I'm 41 years old and I'm in charge of artistic planning and casting at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, and you know, I still have imposter syndrome and you know, I've led several of the most important young artist programs in this country. And um, I think, you know, maybe within me, having a little bit of imposter syndrome keeps me on my A-game. Um, it's not something that I let debilitate me. Um, certainly when I was younger, as I mentioned, and just starting out and uh, feeling that, you know, am I getting jobs too soon? Um, is someone going to figure out that I shouldn't be doing this at this age because I don't see other people doing what I'm doing or I didn't see other people who had trained as pianists running things successfully as an administrator at that point and I, I didn't see anybody that looked like me um, in the business and so I, I just kept wondering you know at what point is someone going to figure out <laughs> that someone else should be doing what I'm doing um, and Again, it was never debilitating. It always made me work harder. I would say that, though, as someone who is a perfectionist and will always give 250% to anything I do, at times, maybe it made me work too hard. Um, mm. And I'm very conscious now about the, this idea of quality of life. And I used to kind of define quality of life as um, that thing that none of us ever thought we really wanted when we started our career, we were going to have these fantastic lives traveling to different cities and performing. And it was all going to be so glamorous. And then we all get into, you know, our thirties and forties and start to realize we value the things that we didn't think we did in our twenties. And I care about where I sleep at night and how many nights a year I'm living out of a suitcase. And, um, yeah. you know, all, all, all of those sort of things. I, I, I started to realize that as hard as I was working, to achieve what I was achieving and to have the success that I was having, um, it was coming at a cost of work-life balance. And so I had to try to figure out a way to not feel that I had to work so incredibly hard in a way that would make me feel better about myself thinking, okay, if I just work this hard, I can keep fooling them <laughs> um, to suddenly yeah. realizing, no, I'm having success because you know, I know what I'm doing and I wouldn't get recruited for different positions if I wasn't at a certain level of achievement and if people didn't like working with me. So why do I right. have to keep, I, I don't have to keep proving that to the world. What I'm doing right now is actually trying to continually prove it to myself. And that might be a waste of That's effort. so true. It's so true. And in the and at the end of the day, it is yourself who is the hardest to convince mm -hmm. that you deserve to be where you are. But I love this so much because you're getting into so many things. I mean, 
one of the things that I personally have struggled with the most in my life is knowing when enough work is enough work because we are in an industry where your work is never done and there's always more music to learn and there's always, you know, there's always deeper to go in the music that you do know. And, you know, how, how does, how has that relationship with yourself worked for you in terms of being able to trust that you've done what you need to do? Yeah. You know, for me, uh, I always remember we're in the business of preparation like 95% of what we do is preparation. We perform so little in terms of how much time we put into things. Yeah. And so when I just remind myself and remind the people around me that we will perform as we have prepared. And if we have really put the time in in a way that is intelligent, it's about quality of preparation, not always quantity. And I think that that's where we get confused. We start to equate things to the math of time. How many hours did I log? Not what was the quality of those hours that I logged, but how did I use my time? And so I think we have to think more in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that starts to align our values in a different way. Yeah, it's the it's the relationship to how well am I doing in the time that I'm spending instead of how much time I'm spending dictating how well I'm doing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I always found that so hard. So, anyways, you have a a unique relationship with uh, sort of the connection between being a performer and 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 mental health and being a a mental health professional. Your your husband Rush. Um, who sadly passed away, I think, two years ago now, was a, was a singer and then became a, a psychologist. Yep. So, yeah, talk a little bit about that, about what that, that meant to you and the intersection of all these things. Yeah, and certainly, um, uh, you know, I, I was so blessed uh, to have Rush in my life as, as so many people were blessed to have him in their lives. And certainly music is what brought us together. We met in grad school. Um, in a song repertoire class for singers and pianists and we were paired doing a John Musto song the first week of the master's degree and we were together 17 years after that. Um, but uh, I, I learned a few different things actually. In, what was interesting was actually seeing um, Rush's transition from singer to psychologist, which was a decision he made where he wanted to feel that he was giving back in a tangible way on a daily basis to people. Um, and I mean, there were other factors involved, but he, he felt that that as a profession was a calling for him. Um, so in one regard to, it was very interesting to see someone make a career transition where so much of what we do is we feel that our instruments defines us. And if we don't do that anymore. It's like someone has taken our superpower away and you go through a whole process there. And for me, what I learned with that was that there was a certain amount of grieving for his career that he had to do, realizing that he wasn't doing this thing that uh, was this big talent that he had, um, that he was letting that go to pursue another path. So that to me was interesting to be living in the same environment as someone making the career shift out of performance into another field, um, which has helped me in my work with many young artists who have grappled with that. 
Yeah. Well, that just, I mean, even as you said that he felt that it was really a calling for him to give back in this way, it must have taken so much courage, you know, to, to leave that career behind, even though he knew that what he was leaving it for was something that he truly felt was his calling. Absolutely. And even then, you know, after he had gone through his PhD and was starting to practice, you know, we would go to any sort of performance and, you know, he would leave just thinking, you know, God, I wish I was still doing that. Um, and him realizing that, you know, that too was a legitimate, very good feeling to have. And to not just feel that you have to close yourself off and not feel that, oh, you don't suddenly just one day feel like, well, this was the right decision. And I should, you know, always feel that it's gone, it's in the past, and I should never feel like I want to do it again. You know, so right. that, that was an interesting it's like thing, those, too. Those feelings can coexist. They, they absolutely can, and they should. They should. Yeah. You just have a different relationship with your performance career. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so I... <laughs> I'm so curious, you know, we, so many of us feel that our identity is so tied up in, in what we do. I think that's one of the really unique things about our profession is it's not just, you know, I'm not just a professional musician. It is who I am. I am a musician. And so what was that like? Because I know so many people, as I'm sure you do too, who have left the field, who are leaving the field, especially now with, with the pandemic, what was it like to, you know, to sort of rediscover, uh, your own identity or his identity in, in that moment of leaving his career. Yeah. You know, and it's very interesting that, that, that whole time in my life and in his life that, that built off of thoughts I'd already been having in, you know, my twenties. And, um, I, I think many of us have had an experience where again, our teachers and our mentors who we've talked about already, you know, all of us have had the experience where someone said to us, you know, if you can see yourself doing anything else besides music, you should go do that thing. Or if, if you don't wake up every morning and feel like this is who I am, this is how I have to live my life, then you're just not passionate enough about music to really make it in this profession. And I remember even before Rush going through all of this, I just thought, my God, should anybody feel that way about their career? Like, regardless of the field, aren't we setting ourselves up for failure? And isn't this the most unhealthy relationship we can have with our profession slash vocation? Because it suddenly is becoming the thing that must define us with every waking hour. And um, if you thought differently than that, it was as if you weren't committed enough to it and that you weren't then deserving of a career of any repute, uh, because you just weren't passionate enough. Absolutely. Which, and that that connects so much to what you were talking about with with imposter syndrome, where it's like if you are not living this and working your ass off twenty four hours a day, you do not deserve what you have. Yeah, yeah, and and, and for me, it was very important to you know nurture outside interests from what I do and to nurture my relationship, um, and you know working with so many colleagues decades older than me and seeing, you know, how miserable they had been in their interpersonal relationships, how many failed marriages had happened. Um, They chose not to have kids because the career was their baby, quote unquote. And um, I just don't believe it has to be that way. And I think that, that many people of my generation and younger are kind of reclaiming this sense that 
no, we are human beings. We are meant to have balance in our lives. We're meant to have quality of life. That does not have to be a good career and a happy life outside of the concert hall or the opera house. Those don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, and so I, I, I had already thought that early on. And in my work with so many young artists, you know, I would ask them, what else are you interested in? Because, um, you know, God forbid, let's say I couldn't work on opera anymore. Um, I could pivot into any three, four or five different directions yeah. and find meaning in my life and happiness. And I think that if we feel like this is really all we can do, um, boy, we're setting ourselves up for a difficult life. Absolutely. Because we are more than what we do. Yeah. And so many people, I mean, God forbid there were a pandemic one day and all the opera houses closed down and, you know, what are we left with? You know, so many people are being uh, forced to confront that now. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, before we uh, before we wrap up here, I just want to ask you a, a few questions about sort of the opera world uh, in particular. Yeah. One of the things One of the things that I've always sort of thought and wondered is – as a singer, and, and you're not a singer, but you work with them all the time, uh, you know, you go on stage and you literally are your product. You are your profession in your physical body. And we are in a profession in which there is so little margin for error in, in what we do as performers. But how do we stop ourselves from feeling like when I am my profession, when there's so little margin for error as a profession that, okay, there's no margin for error for me as a human being, you know, how do we, how do we separate those things? It's, it's such a weird specific opera thing. Yeah, it is. And I think, yeah, there is a difference for singers. I, I, I do believe it because they are their instrument. They can't see or touch their instrument. Um, and uh, it, it's a very personal thing. And their perception of their sound is different from what we get. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole different thing. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really intrinsic upon singers, all artists, but singers in particular have to be really mindful about what kind of team they're putting around them and what that support system is, who that voice teacher, the few vocal coaches, any other mentor is because they work uh, with an instrument that is so personal and within them. They need people who have their best interests in mind, but who are also always going to be honest with them. Um, they are so reliant upon people telling them from the back of an opera house how that sound came out across the orchestra, which is nothing like what they've heard in their head. It's so much about sensation and are they technically lined up in a very, very healthy way. So because they're kind of relying on something that doesn't give them immediate feedback, um, the idea of working with a good team around you is crucial. Um, and it's also crucial to figure out how to filter information. Mm. Um, we as musicians are given opinions left, right, and center. And most of us tend to be people pleasers. And so we will want to make sure that we can regurgitate the note that was fed to us, you know, um, to show that we've accomplished something. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas what I think the highest level of artistry truly is, is can you take a note and number one, decide, is it right for you or is it not right for you? 
And if it is, how do you make it your own and take ownership over it? Because then you've interpreted, you've had a musical opinion, and you've moved us. Because you've created something of your own. And so, you know, I, I think that for many musicians, it's hard to get out of conservatory mindset. Um, I find in my work with young artists a lot, I'm trying to get the, I tell them I'm, I'm on a mission to reclaim your artistry. I want you to reclaim it. Uh, you've heard yes, no, right, wrong. You, you feel like you're trying to check boxes and be correct. And correct never moved an audience, ever. Correct may have helped you interpret and make an artistic decision that moved an audience, but just being correct never moved anybody. And being mm -hmm. correct didn't inspire you to get into this in the first place. Something mm -hmm. moved you. Something communicated to you. We are the best storytellers and communicators on our best days. And there are days where we're not healthy and we just need the correctness of technique to get us through. And we still have to find a way to be at that place and just communicate enough to do our job. Um, it's not going to be perfect every day. You know, every major quarterback throws interceptions. There are fumbles that you have to move on. The game keeps going. And so that's always my challenge to every artist. Um, if, the, you know, I'm totally on football references today for some odd reason, Ben. Um, but, you know, all you're this in arm, Iowa. You're in the heartland. Exactly. You're you know, all, all this armchair quarterbacking. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you can get all these opinions and you're the one standing center stage having to communicate to the audience and live the character as an opera singer. Um, not the person who gave you the note. So it is your artistry to claim. You just have to have the courage to do so. Wow. Well, that is beautiful. And I hope uh, listeners and everyone will take that to heart. Um, I, I, I do... I really hope that this idea that you put out about it's not about correct, it's about, you know, your interpretation of correct. It's about what works for you, what moves you, and that's what will move people. And I hope that will make more people feel like they can be vulnerable on stage and make mistakes, just like they can be vulnerable in life and make mistakes in life. It just makes you human. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what the, you know, that's why the arts are so crucial to society and to culture. You know, shouldn't they reflect on that and um, inspire us all to be better? And, you know, we can only be better people if we can acknowledge when we've had imperfections. So why do of we course. have to be perfect all the time? <laughs> of course. Could not agree more. Um, well, I think we'll leave it there, Michael. Uh, You've been so, so wonderful. Thank you so very much for coming and spending your time with me. Um, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great.